Please look in your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, and we're going to begin reading in verse 25. Matthew 6, 25, this is God's word. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for not only the ways that you care for us, but we are thankful for your word to us. Would you take it now and do the work that you promised, that it will not return void. It will accomplish all of its purposes. Would you have your way in our hearts with your word now? Uh, may we not be uh, tempted to, to, to worry about all the things that need to be done today or tomorrow or this week. May we not be tempted to, to drift off, to go somewhere else, but may we be attentive to hear from you in your word today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, several years ago, I took a day off from work to stay home with our kids so that Leslie could go to a doctor's appointment. And kids were young. And they were playing in the back bedroom, and everything was fine until it wasn't. And I knew it wasn't because I heard something, and I don't remember what it was, but it was an indication that there was a problem. And I went back to find the toddler standing over a puddle in the carpet. And I did not react well. She was potty trained. Why did this happen? Why not on the hardwood floor? Why on the carpet? Why hadn't I thought to remind her to take a potty break? And then why was I having to deal with the cleanup now instead of doing my real work? Rightful disappointment spiraled down into self-centered and sinful rage and sulking. And in the middle of the cleanup, while on my hands and knees, the phone rang, and it was Leslie, and I let her know in no uncertain terms, just how unhappy I was through my tone and my description of my predicament. And when I was done with my pity party, she said, well, the doctor found a tumor and it's cancer. And suddenly, my little pity party evaporated. What seemed like the world's worst problem 
disappeared. It all went away. I had what was as close to one of those movie-like tunnel vision, out-of-body experiences that I have ever had because with one sentence, our lives changed. What was such a problem was now insignificant. The mess on the floor meant nothing to me anymore. Well, have you ever had a similar experience where you thought you were dealing with something that mattered a lot to you and then something else comes along and shatters your outlook, changes your perspective, causes you to see life differently? Well, that's what Jesus is coming at in the Sermon on the Mount, to show us what really matters. He's coming after the things that we get so weighed down by, and he shows us they're trivial things, molehills that we turn into mountains. We worry about food, we worry about our bodies, we worry about clothing or whatever. These things represent all the earthly, physical things that we worry about. Don't, don't limit your perspective here that Jesus only is talking about food and water and clothing. He's talking about everything that we that we deal with, the temporal stuff, the treasures on earth that he's just spoken about. This is what he's addressing. We stress and we lose sleep. We spin and we toil. We fret over what are truly molehills, and we ignore the mountain of significance, the weightier matter. And to our own shame, it can often take incredibly painful or rattling news to awake us to what really matters in this life. See, our anxieties have a way of revealing to us what we value. And Jesus has just been talking about things that value. In fact, he starts out with therefore, tying it all back to what he's just said. Earthly treasures, darkness, light, mammon, God. Mammon representing everything we value. Yes, money, but so much more. And our anxieties have a way of showing us what it is that we truly value. Like warning lights on the dashboard of our cars. You know, if the maintenance light comes on and it means you just need an oil change or the, the, the low washer fluid comes on, you know, we, don't, we don't get too bothered by that. We kind of keep driving, try and remind ourselves we need to do that. But you better know if the oil light comes on, it's time to pull over. If the check engine light comes on, it's time to address the need immediately, or you're going to call a tow truck, or worse, repair uh, or replace a car. Well, in the same way, our anxieties show us not only what we worry about, but they show us what we value what we truly worship. Are you worried about being right or being seen as right? You may have an idol of self-righteousness or pride. Are you worried about the state of our society? It's possible you may have an idol of comfort, an idol of convenience, or an idol of security. Are you worried about your health? You may have an idol of self-control or of control in general or of self-righteousness. Calvin called our hearts a factory of idols. And as we know, our hearts are desperately sick and deceptive and tricky. And so that factory producing all of these idols is, is really hard to get a grip on. Because one minute, a good uh, and noble thing can quickly turn into something that becomes an obsession, something that we begin to worship. And so Jesus here in this passage comes at our anxieties with this unequivocal command, do not be anxious, he says three times. Do not be anxious. And yet he doesn't just say stop it, thankfully. 
He doesn't just say stop it, but he explains why. He points us to things that we can think of and remember and process so that we can know why we shouldn't be anxious. He directs us where our trust should rest and where our ambitions should be aimed. And so looking with me now at verse 25, as I mentioned, it begins with the word therefore, tying us back to what he's just said, ending with you can't serve God and mammon. And so in a sense, there's a choice that is set before us. What or who we will serve or worship will determine then whether we should worry or not. See, if we choose to worship money or anything earthly, then we have every right to worry because money makes a horrible God. What it demands from us far exceeds what it delivers in momentary satisfactions. But if we choose to worship and serve God, then any worry is misplaced because of who God is, the mighty one who stands ready to aid and to help us in time of trouble, to save us from all of our difficulties. Therefore, Jesus says, if we are trusting our Father in heaven, then we have nothing to be anxious about, whether it is what we eat or drink, our bodies, what we will wear. Jesus dealt with the same thing teaching about prayer when he said, ask your Father in heaven for your daily bread. Teach us to pray. Okay, Heavenly Father, give us our daily bread. God is aware that we need these things before we ask, and yet he cares about what we need. He is mindful of what we need. And it is a way of expressing that as he knows we have these needs and as we come to them, he is the one who meets those needs. Jesus then says, driving the point home, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Several rhetorical questions here, meaning they don't need an answer, but yet we know that we need to think about the answer. Because we know the answer, life is certainly more than these things, and yet look at every advertisement that we're inundated with. Food, clothing, you know, stuff, stuff. You need this stuff. You're not going to be fulfilled unless you have this stuff. Look at this new stuff over here, this new and improved and even better stuff. Don't you need it too? And on and on and on. And we begin to obsess about it so easily. Leslie can tell you that when a need comes up in our home, I have this tendency to fall into what I call the, 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 the research wormhole. My entire life becomes kind of driven by this need to find out everything about what it is that we need. I have to find the appropriate and right answer. If it's a refrigerator, I need to know what is the best brand of refrigerator. And I'm noticing all of the smiles out there, so I guess I'm not the only one on this. Which model of that brand is the most reliable and will last longer than five years in today's market? What features do I need? What features do we want? You know, French doors and see-through doors and Wi-Fi connectivity and all of these things and researching and researching and researching. And when I think I finally figured it out, I read the review, review, you know, from Soccer Mom 409 who says, this is the worst refrigerator I've ever owned. And I have to start all back over again, you know. Hours and hours fretting over what appliance to buy or what type of paint we need to paint our house with or what router will provide the best coverage and on and on and on. And then I hear the words of Jesus rebuke me, is not life more than this? He then points us to nature. 
First with the birds, he says, who neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. Don't miss that this is kind of a comical picture here. I mean, in our own modern day, birds, you know, chickens on tractors and combines. Can you imagine if we observe this? I mean, that's the picture that he's painting here. This is silly. This is not what birds need to do. Their heavenly, your heavenly father feeds them. He says, look. Consider, ponder, take in, notice, see what God is doing. Your heavenly father takes care of them. So I think that, you know, sometimes when we're anxious, it might be good to go outside and go for a walk to look, you know, because we normally don't notice the birds. This morning, providentially, when I got out of the car, there was a hawk on the light pole and he was letting everybody know he was there. It was funny because I then heard the mocking birds mocking him at a distance. I'm sure if he could get his little claws in them, he'd have breakfast by now. But he was, you know, sitting there uh, doing his thing, looking for, for, for breakfast out in the field. We don't notice these things, but there was God, you know, providentially caring for this guy. I'm sure he eventually found something to eat because guess what? They do because our Heavenly Father cares for them. Maybe we need to walk outside and look at the birds. Maybe we need to look at the flowers. Maybe we need to walk on the seashore and see how... The waves never stop coming in. They keep coming and coming and coming because God governs them. Even the atheist looks up at the stars, looks at the hurricane, observes that birds migrate perfectly every year without GPS, coming back to the same spot each time. So I often say even the atheist stands on the Grand Canyon and says, wow. The heavens declare the glory of God. For me, it's my nightly walks with Oreo, particularly the last one of the night, because the stars are usually out and it's usually quiet. And when I look up, there are the stars. They haven't fallen. God is still on his throne. It's okay. And that's good for me. And yet, notice that he says, not the heavenly father feeds them or their heavenly father feeds them, but your heavenly father feeds them. This is who your heavenly father is. Your heavenly father takes care of everything out there. Even though you never notice or pay attention to it, he is there caring for all of these things. And yet the real kicker is not that the heavens declare the glory of God. It's not that we see him caring for the birds in nature. The real kicker for for, for the passage in verse 26 is, are you not of more value than they? For all the glory of God on display in creation and in his providential care for it, none of it surpasses the fact that our creator has made us in his image. This is what David noted when he looked up at the stars in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. More than that, Jesus poses the question here to believers. He's addressing his disciples and us today. And so from this draws the implication of our redemption. More than creation, more than providential care is the fact that he has saved us. This is what we see in Romans 8 where Paul asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The antidote to our worry then 
is to not only consider God's creation and his care for us, the fact that he's made us, but the fact that he has saved us. We look at our redemption and realize God's great care for us, that we have no reason to be filled with anxiety because if God is for us, who or what could ever be against us? And then next comes another rhetorical question. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You know, we're so familiar to, with this passage that we don't really get the, uh, the, the I don't want to call it sarcasm. It's, it's, you know, I, I think that's beneath Jesus in the sense of sarcasm is kind of the least of the, of the, of the humors. Uh, but it, it's certainly humorous. I mean, he keeps saying these things that are just outlandish to drive his point home. Which of you can add a single hour to his span of life? That's an adequate representation. That's where the ESV goes with it. But the language is actually who can add to his. And so the, 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 the word that's used is actually a measurement of length, not of, of, of time. And so it's an adequate uh, translation to say an, an hour span to his life, but it's also adequate, and your translation may say, an inch to his height or to his forearm, because that's how they used to measure things with their forearm. That was the picture here, that you can't add an inch by worrying. It's ludicrous. If anything, worry does the opposite. Studies show that worry shortens our lives. I don't know how they figure that out and you know what research is involved in determining how much time you lose when you worry, but you know, we know worry affects our health. You know, when the doctor, you know, addresses things like high blood pressure, or other things that often result from stress. And they say things like reduce stress. I always find that that doesn't reduce stress, but increases stress when they tell me to reduce anyway. And so you know, we know it has this physical impact on us when we worry. It won't grow us an inch taller. It won't grow our arms any longer. It won't add an hour to our life. It is foolish, Jesus says, to worry. No good thing comes from it. And then he takes us back to creation, this time to the flowers. And he addresses specifically wildflowers, the kind of flowers that don't, they're not cultivated by people. They just stand out there and grow according to God's will. And their glory, though short-lived, is compared here to King Solomon. Riches beyond compare, probably the best-dressed king that Israel has ever known. And Jesus says that he never had clothing that held a candle to the flowers of the field. And so he poses another question. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If God shows such favor to grass that soon withers and is thrown into the fire, will he not care for us who are his own, who he has bought with a price, who he has made his children? So then why worry he says, O oh, you of little faith. That phrase of you of little faith is, is found in a number of places in the Gospels, and it's always addressed uh, to the disciples because it is such a, a loving rebuke that expresses you ought to know better. One author writes that the disciples and their worries were not sufficiently taking to heart the comfort they should have derived from the presence, promises, power, and love of Christ which is exactly what we do when we worry. And so he says in verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
And we know, and we've already addressed this, it's not a suggestion to just give up and say God will provide and not do anything, not work, not plan, or so forth. We saw, for example, in Proverbs, the, the lesson on the ant and the passage in, in uh, the epistles that speaks to, you know, one who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. We know that we are to labor and to work, but rather our labors and our planning are not to be filled with anxiousness. J.C. Ryle states, Prudent provision for the future is right. Wearing, corroding, self-tormenting anxiety is wrong. Now, Jesus has always already made the point that practically it's wrong, something even the Gentiles or unbelievers can understand, that you can't add a moment to your life or an inch to your height. You know, he's, he's dealt with it practically. But here he drives home the point that it's also in opposition to our faith. He says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And just as he taught us to pray, give us our daily bread, even that is the prayer in, fr- in the framework of faith, that God knows our needs. And so it is foolish and it is faithless to worry about what we will eat or drink or wear. Instead of this, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This statement one that many of us may have memorized as kids or even as adults, one that we uh, find familiar, is really the climax statement of the entire section that we've been in so far. This is what Jesus has been building up to, this statement. Seek first the kingdom of God. That is, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or as treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Don't look into the darkness for the answer. Look into the light. Don't serve mammon, serve God. Seek his kingdom first in priority above all of these things that occupy our minds, that stress us out. Once again, J.C. Ryle says, These verses are a striking example of the combined wisdom and compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ's teaching. He knows the heart of a man. He knows that we are all ready to turn off warnings against worldliness by the argument that we cannot help being anxious about the things of this life. Have we not our families to provide for? Must not our bodily wants be supplied? How can we possibly get through life if we think first of our souls? The Lord Jesus foresaw such thoughts, and he furnished an answer. He points out the uselessness of over-anxiety. Our life is entirely in God's hand. All the care in the world will not make us continue a minute beyond the time which God has appointed. We shall not die till our work is done. We shall not die till our work is done. What are we worrying about? What are we fretting about? What are we losing sleep about? What are we spending so much time and energy seeking God's kingdom? When he taught us to pray this in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is to be priority number one. When we were looking at that portion, we saw that it was certainly a prayer for the evangelism of the nations, that his kingdom would come to earth but that it is also especially a prayer for each of us to to daily submit to his reign in our own hearts. Not pitting those against each other, I just think that it's easier for us to pray for the nations, for unbelievers to come to faith, than it is for us to pray, Jesus, help me to submit to your reign in my heart. Because when we do, we're called to obey his revealed will to us. You see, when we submit to his reign in our hearts, it means that we are kind to one another. 
We forgive each other. We're tender-hearted. It means that we outdo one another in showing honor. It means that we submit to one another in reverence for Christ. It means that we are to live at peace with each other so far as it depends upon us. It means that we rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with each other, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, and on and on and on the things that we could plug in here. As we submit to King Jesus, the promise is ours that all these things will be added to us. What we need will be added. He will meet all of our needs according to his riches. We will not die until our time is done. Yet seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness must always be rooted in the gospel. If we ever begin to think that this is transactional, that if we do for him, he somehow owes us, we get off track. The righteousness of God is never found in our works, our best efforts, even our noble intentions. Romans 3.22 states, The righteousness of God is by faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It is by faith. It is always by faith. It It has always been by faith. And it will always be by faith. Our righteousness is never our own. It is always by faith. Paul goes on, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. By faith. And we know this is true at the beginning of our journey when we come to the place where we trust in Christ, that we confess our sins and believe in our hearts. Yet as believers, this continues, that we walk by faith. We grow in faith. We seek the kingdom and His righteousness by faith, not by works. This means that in the furnace of temptation, we look to Christ by faith to resist that temptation and sin. It means that in the conflict of our relationships, we look to Christ by faith for the grace to respond with kindness, forgiving each other. It means that in the throes of worry and anxiety in this life, we look to Christ by faith for His provision according to His promises. We walk by faith, not by sight or any other human means or effort. It is all by grace through faith that we live unto Him. Yet it is often through these trying times that we are rattled, that we are awakened to see what really matters, what is really a mountain and what is a molehill. Our tendency is to focus on earthly treasure, earthly stuff, what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear, etc., what refrigerator we need to buy. Whatever it is, that's where we tend to focus our time and our energy. And Jesus is saying, look up, look up. Look away from the earthly stuff to the heavenly stuff. Look at what matters. Look what rust and moth or thief cannot steal and destroy. Look up. We tend to be clouded by the darkness. Jesus calls us to look with the eyes of our hearts into His marvelous light. We are drawn to the temporal mammon, the things that we find valuable in the moment. And He calls us to see the eternal weight of glory that awaits us. So lift up your eyes. And see the beauty of the Savior who bled and died for our sins and promises that He will withhold no good thing from those who trust Him in walking by faith, those who walk uprightly. And then in verse 34, He takes one more more time to say it again. Why? Because we need to hear it. Therefore, 
Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. None of us knows what tomorrow holds. None of us knows what the next minute holds. Just as I was wallowing in self-pity as I cleaned up the toddler's mess, I had no idea what news the phone would bring into our lives. Worry doesn't change the outcome of anything. But worry changes us. Anxiety erodes our faith. Anxiety is an enemy of faith. Don't, don't, don't miss that. Don't, don't treat worry as something that you can, you can keep around like a pet. Worry and anxiety is an enemy to your faith. It diminishes our hope in Christ Jesus. Anxiety, as I've mentioned, torments our bodies. It brings all kinds of hazards. High blood pressure, irritable stomachs, headaches, sleeplessness. The irony last night of leg cramps that I had to get up from and then go back to bed and then not be anxious that I was going to have another leg cramp that, of course, then kept me awake so I couldn't sleep. And even though I know I had to get up and preach tomorrow, the irony of that happening last night was almost... Humorous. Anxiety leads us to treat others with disdain, harshly, critically, often harming our relationships. Anxiety truly brings nothing good into the world around us. John Stott says, We should plan for the future, of course, but not worry about the future. One day's trouble is enough for one day, or each day has troubles enough on its own. So why anticipate them? If we do, we double them. For if our fear does not materialize, we have worried once for nothing. If it does materialize, we have worried twice instead of once. In both cases, it's foolish. Worry doubles trouble. So let tomorrow be in the hands of God where it really lies. As James points out, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So may we then put off anxiety and put on faith with the assurance that if God is for us, Who can be against us? May we fight our worries with the confidence that God will withhold no good thing from those who walk uprightly in faith. Let us bury our fears with the knowledge that our Savior arose from the grave to lead us in triumph to the glory of God. And may we lay aside every concern that burdens our hearts by clinging to His promises. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to do this? Because we, we confess that uh, we, we know, we hear, we understand 
the foolishness and the faithlessness of worry. And yet, we're, we're going we're to go right back to it. It's what we do. We have things in our lives and our hearts that we value more than you. And so we, we're going to think about them. We're going we're to get tripped up. We're going to dwell on this. Would you bring us back to this passage, to the, to the beauty uh, that is in the gospel, that if you're for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing in all creation. Nothing can separate us from, from your love. Lord, help us remember that our, our lives are in your hands. You hold tomorrow. We are but a mist, and so therefore, we will not die until our work is done. Would you then give us confidence to put off worry, to put on faith, to bury our fears and our anxieties, to look up to Christ and to see that you lead us in victory as our risen Savior, that as we see you resurrected, that is our hope as well. This life is not all there is, neither is it just food and drink and clothing. So help us, Lord, change our hearts. May we value and trust and love you more today than we have when we walked in the room. Enable us to grow in this to treasure you more and more. Make yourself dear to our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.